Amen. Well, remain standing and let's all take out our copy of the scripture. And we're going to turn to Mark's gospel once again this morning, to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking uh, particularly this morning at verses 18 through 22, but in our reading this morning, why don't we go back and remind ourselves of all that Jesus has been doing here in the beginning of his ministry in this region of Galilee. Uh, We'll go back to, uh, let's go back to verse 14 of chapter 1, and we'll get uh, another idea again of, of Mark's sort of pacing even through these first couple of chapters and remind ourselves of what we've seen as we've been going through this over the past couple of months. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 14 of Mark, and we'll read through verse 22 of the second chapter, and this is uh, Mark's gospel, the inspired word of God, God's word to us this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening... At sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately 
the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." And here our text for today. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, uh, such a wonderful record of your ministry, the beginning of your ministry. Uh, We pray, Lord, that as we look into this portion uh, that is before us this morning, that you would bless our time. We pray that we would give good attention to this word as it is open to us. And we pray that your spirit would be the one who teaches us, who screws these things down into our hearts and our minds, that they may uh, stay, that we may recall them, Father, that we may learn from them. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time now In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
Well, quite a wonderful record that Mark is giving us so far. Jesus has come preaching the gospel, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, of which he himself is the king. He's been calling others to himself to come and follow him, and they were doing that, dropping everything and following him. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out unclean spirits from people. He's been cleansing lepers, restoring paralytics, and perhaps most significantly and most in line for the reason that he has come, he has forgiven sins. But he's also then eaten with sinners. He's spent time with them, spent, kept company with tax collectors. And because he kept company with such people in order to minister uh, grace to them, not condoning their sin, but ministering to them, because of that, Jesus was beginning to attract unfavorable attention of those who wielded the religious authority in these days, the Pharisees, particularly the scribes. And here in chapter 2, then, we, have, we are beginning to see the disputing of Jesus' authority, uh, or at least the questioning of it by the people in these groups. Questions like, as we just read, why does he talk this way? Why does he Presumed to be able to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. They ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Today, he asks the question, why do your disciples not fast as ours do? And next, it will be, why do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath day? And in this short passage this morning that we're going to be looking at, the subjects of joy and mourning as an expression of sadness, are in focus, as is the radical statement of what Jesus has brought and is bringing to pass. Again this morning, another question brought by the Pharisees, brought by others. In this case, case, the question comes first. So first we see a question on fasting. That's the subject of of the question that is brought. You know, as a pastor, I hope other pastors, I know many pastors do, I know all don't, but many do, I do, I love to hear questions. I love to interact with people and try to answer their questions from God's Word, certainly from any member of our congregation, but especially from our young people, especially from our children. The, chil- the questions that children ask can be, can be some of the most challenging questions Um, Certainly some of the most interesting, and we have uh, a particular member, young member of our congregation comes to me very often and lets me know that that she has a question for me, and very often her question has to do with things that she observes during the service, and they usually begin like this, why do we this? Why do we sing? Why do we give offerings? Why do we stand up at different times and sit down at different times? Well, that's the kind of question that Jesus gets this morning. And it comes from, Mark tells us, or at least it comes as the result of the actions of two groups of people. At the beginning of verse 18, Mark tells us, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So as as John, and the reference there is to John the Baptist, who is now in prison, and and the Pharisees, they were both very strict adherents to 
um, the, the law of, of Moses, to the law of, that the Pharisees had, had built up, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, all of those things. And as they were, so then were their disciples, the people who followed them. Remember, a disciple is a follower. And many different people, many different groups had disciples, had followers, just as Jesus did. And Mark tells us that these followers of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, he says that they were fasting. That sets the stage for us. We're not told why they were fasting. The Pharisees, uh, perhaps it was a, a weekly fast that they were observing. John's disciples, perhaps they were fasting uh, to, to pray to God because John the Baptist was now in prison. We don't know for sure. There are many reasons that it could be, but what is important is that they were fasting. And the question is then asked to Jesus, interesting that now finally we've seen uh, them ask themselves, talk among themselves, we've seen them ask the disciples, now they come to Jesus. Now they ask Jesus himself this question. And the question is, right here in the text, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, one of these questions, why do your disciples, and why, by extension, you in teaching your disciples, why are you not causing, telling, teaching your disciples to obey the, the rules, the laws that we have set down? You know, fasting was, was one of the subjects on which the teaching of the Jews, and particularly of the Pharisees, went quite a ways beyond what the actual teaching of Scripture was. We mentioned in the past how they had uh, instituted some 613 additional rules. And many of them, or several of them, were about fasting. And fasting itself is a, a very interesting subject. Throughout Scripture, there are many examples of, of fasting, Fasting is often, usually, connected with very visceral uh, emotions, very deep emotions. A couple of examples. Remember Hannah back at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, that because of her childlessness, 1 Samuel 1.7 says that she wept and did not eat. Um, even David, he demonstrated his grief at Abner's death in 2 Samuel 3 by not eating. And because of this sort of natural, physical, physiological connection between emotions of, of grief and of sadness and lack of, of appetite, and we see that today very often, but fasting became the, the customary means of sort of showing those emotions, of proving to others the, the inner emotion, the, the sorrow. And so a strong connection between fasting and mourning became a thing. It arose very naturally. And then from there, it came to be seen as a means of, of proving sincerity before God as a response to this grief. Um, and, and as a way to show the sincerity, the strength of one's appeal to God 
with a desire to move him to pity. And so fasting almost always in the scripture is connected with prayer. We hear very often of prayer and fasting. And we see this, um, that twofold sort of, of understanding of seeking to um, show our, the strength of our convictions to God and to seek uh, an answer from him and as an expression of grief. We see those together very strongly in the actions of David when the child uh, that Bathsheba had born to him was sick, but before he had died. Remember, David himself explained, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. There's that connection. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. There's the other connection, uh, that the child may live. But then he said, but now that the child is, is no longer alive, I stopped fasting. They were amazed, remember, that when they told him that the child had died, that he got up and washed his face and went in and had something to eat. He says, why should I fast now? So we see those, those kinds of connections. But what does the Bible say about fasting? Particularly this question. We could spend a whole sermon uh, about the question broadly about what the Bible says about fasting, but let's consider this particularly. Where does the Bible command fasting? And here's the fascinating thing that we find. Fasts in Scripture are called by kings. They are entered into by God's people on many occasions. They're even regulated and held in in esteem, if not and assumed, by Jesus himself, and it has been practiced to great effect by countless Christians throughout church history. But once we we look at all that, we find that there is only one place in Scripture where fasting is commanded. And that is in the very specific instance of the Old Testament celebration of the Day of Atonement. And even there, it is in a somewhat cryptic way. In Leviticus 16, which is the chapter that deals with the Day of Atonement and that ceremony, uh, we read that on that day, it says, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. And that phrase, afflict yourself, can and probably does here mean to fast. But the point is that that's it. That is the only place where Christians, where God's people in any sense, are commanded to fast. But the practice still uh, was well established, well ingrained in the practice of the church and has been since. The Pharisees, of course, in in their desire to, after the the exile and coming back from exile and the the resulting uh, years of, of God's people coming back and the Pharisees' desire as they were raised up, to, to focus on those things, to get the people to obey God, uh, they had codified this idea of fasting. And the Mishnah, which is the, the written record of the oral traditions of Judaism, the Mishnah requires it. And John the Baptist then and the Pharisees and their disciples followed these commandments scrupulously. Remember the 
Remember the Pharisee in the temple? We talked about this last week. The Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple to pray. Remember that, that the, the Pharisee, as he proudly stands and proclaims to God his worthiness, he says in part, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. By the way, the two days that the Pharisees fasted were on Mondays and Thursdays. But Jesus, and more particularly here, his disciples did not fast. And that caught the attention, not only of the Pharisees, but of John the Baptist's followers as well. And so they come to Jesus, and they want to know why. Why do you, Jesus, as as a Jewish leader... Why do you not instruct your followers to observe the tradition of the Jews in regard to this important practice? And here we have really another example of Jesus and his disciples not following along with the accepted religious practices of these religious leaders of the day. These Additional laws, that's what we're talking about. Jesus, of course, never disobeyed the law of God. He never disobeyed what Scripture said, what God had given. He never disobeyed that. But the Pharisees had added all of these other things. And Jesus was not bound to those, as we are not, as they were not. And Jesus did not obey, in many cases, these Additional laws, these things handed down by oral traditions that the Pharisees had taken and expanded and expanded and expanded and and then hardened and calcified from, from general practices, in many cases probably good practices, but they had turned them into commands. And they came to be known as the traditions of the elders. And while the Jews held them in very high esteem, some, the Pharisees, very often elevated them to where they were equal or even above the Word of God. Haven't we seen that in our world? We see it uh, in in our own national history, the the blue laws that that were established by the church these, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, all of these things that came out that, that in many places end up being more important than what the Bible says. That's what happened here. Remember, Jesus even calls out the Pharisees for that very thing, for establishing these human laws and putting them higher than the Scripture. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees criticized Jesus And they say, very similar to what they're saying here, why do your your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And there it was in regard to hand washing uh, before a meal, which Jesus then took and turned back on them, remember, and, and he said, and why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? Which, remember, then he, he went and talked to them about this idea of Corban, uh, which they said got them out of having to honor their father and their mother, placing those, those commands, those Pharisaic commands above what God had said. 
And so back in Mark 2 here, these groups of people want to know why Jesus is letting his disciples and why is he himself, for that matter, disregarding this tradition. You know, tradition is a powerful thing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a good thing, sometimes it's not a good thing. But it is a tough thing to, to break through. It's a tough thing to challenge. It's a tough thing to, to shake loose. Or even sometimes to properly evaluate. Right? You don't often critically think about tradition. But we should. We should critically think about everything. There are several reasons in the church that we might do something. Any particular thing why we might do something in a particular way, various reasons. We might, and, and the best reason, is because we find explicit teaching in the Scripture commanding or forbidden something. Or perhaps we find maybe not explicit teaching, but we find that good and necessary implicit teaching or the, the apostolic example, and so we'll do things uh, based on that. We often, sometimes, and we see this a lot in our in our church order of our, of our denomination. We look at the principles that are laid down in the Bible, and we might see that, that some particular practice or means of doing something is necessitated by the command in the Scripture that in the church all things are to be done decently and in good order. And perhaps... We might do something because a practice is understood to better produce the edification that Scripture commands us to seek. Um, or perhaps we might find a particular uh, practice, a particular decision, a particular way of doing something to, to give less unnecessary offense. You know, we talk about giving offense in the church, and there are some things that, that give offense that just give offense, and we should not mess with those. We can't pull back on those. The gospel is the primary example. We can't say we're not going to preach the gospel. We're not going to preach the law. We're not going to talk about sin because that's going to maybe offend people. That we can't do anything about. But there are other things within the church, whether how we do things, whether we have air conditioning on, whether we, I don't know, any number of things that we can do, and we can say we can do this in such a way that doesn't give offense, and that we can be and should be concerned about. We don't want to be unnecessary, unnecessarily offensive. But tradition is a reason that sometimes we do that. So often, the reason that people in churches sometimes, very often the elders in churches, the reasons that they give, or at least they utilize in their decision-making for doing this instead of that, is, is that famous line that this is the way we've always done it. That's tradition. And it is, to many people, unassailable. And we just do it because of that. There was a young wife who was cooking a meal for her husband early on in their marriage, and, and she wanted to make a, a good impression. And so she was making a, a pot roast, and she got everything ready and was getting ready to cook it. And when she got ready to cook it, she took and cut about four inches off of each end of the pot roast before she put it in the oven. And the husband saw that and said, why do you do that? 
And she said, well, I don't know. I got that from my mom. She always did it, and so that's why I do it. And so she got thinking about it, and after dinner, she called her mom, and she said, Mom, why, why did you always cut off the ends of the pot roast before you cooked it? She assumed it had something to do with uh, the juiciness of it or the cooking time or something like that. Her mom said, that's the way my mom always did it. And that's, that's the reason. <coughs> so, becoming even more curious about it, the, the wife, fortunately her grandmother, was still alive in a nursing home. So she called her up. And she said, Grandma, why did you always cut the ends off your pot roast? I mean, you did it, Mom does it, I do it, and we're wondering why. And she had to think about it for a minute. It had been a long time since she cooked a pot roast. And she says, oh, she says, the reason that I did it when I first started cooking pot roast was because the pot roast was too big to fit in my little pan, and so I had to cut the ends off of it to get it to fit. And from that it had become a tradition, an unquestioned tradition. And so her daughter did it, and her daughter did it. And very often we just follow the tradition without thinking about it, without questioning it. Now sometimes traditions are fine. Some, some things are traditional for good reasons, and that's fine, but we should never do something, we should never insist on doing something merely because it is the way we've always done it. But tradition, often unquestioned, often reigns supreme, even to the point of trumping the Scripture. But Jesus, we've seen, and as we have seen, does not follow tradition for tradition's sake. It was true with him refusing to refuse to interact with others who broke from that same tradition. To, when he refused to refuse to eat with tax collectors and other sinners. And we'll see it again in Mark's gospel and other places. But the implication in the question is that if Jesus wants to be taken seriously as a teacher, as a rabbi, If he wants to be taken seriously by the Jewish community, he had better get in line with those traditions. And here, Jesus says that there is a good reason not to follow the tradition of the elders. It turns out that it's a very good reason. And so beginning in verse 19, Jesus gives them the answer to their question. And he gives three brief, illustrative or illustrative, if you prefer, statements that all come together to make his important point. First, he says in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In contrast to the the sober mood surrounding the whole issue of fasting, Remember the portrayal that Jesus will give uh, in in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 6, of the the way the Pharisees fasted with their gloomy look and their contorted, disfigured, dirty faces. In contrast, here Jesus raises a different picture, a mental picture of a day of great celebration, a wedding feast. And a wedding feast in the first century would be would put our into-the-night celebrations to shame as far as revelry and partying goes. First-century Jewish wedding celebrations very often lasted a whole week. Uh, Very often businesses would be put on hold. 
for this celebration. As the wedding guests celebrate such a joyous occasion, celebrating with the bride and the groom. And as with weddings today, one of the most important parts of the the celebration in first century uh, wedding celebrations was, of course, the food. A great feast of food and a great feast of, of drink as well. And it was part of the joy, part of the celebration. In fact, it's not without reason that in the book of Revelation that heaven itself is described as one long, eternal, glorious wedding feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A supper. Food. As Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 25, 6, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And so Jesus brings up that picture and he asks, How appropriate would it be for the wedding guests in that context of celebration and anticipation of such a feast How appropriate would it be for them to come to that celebration fasting? Not just fasting, but in the the mood of fasting. And the answer, of course, is not appropriate at all. It's absurd. It would be contrary to the proper flavor of the event. And he says that it is equally absurd if my followers were to fast in the midst of my blessed presence among them. Jesus is saying, I've come to to give abundant life. I've come to bring salvation. I've come to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. So how inappropriate would it be then for my disciples to be fasting in the midst of that? For the wedding guests to fast, especially, he says, while the bridegroom is with them. And, of course, Jesus is the bridegroom. Throughout the New Testament, talked about in that way, in those terms. Then he adds this, he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It would be inappropriate to fast. Because fasting is connected with the the wrong emotions, the wrong um, understanding of what's going on. But even as he speaks, he doesn't lose sight of his ministry. He doesn't lose sight of why he has come. He does not forget what price this eternal life will extract from him. He is here. That's a blessed thing he's saying, a cause for joy. But he knows that there will come a time when fasting will be the appropriate thing to do. In verse 20, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus' coming is a time of of joy for his disciples, and indeed for the world, but Jesus said that he, the bridegroom, at some point will be taken away from them. Now that's different than the picture of the wedding celebrations. In wedding celebrations, it's eventually the revelers that go home and leave the bride and the groom to take up their lives. But in this case, there will come a time when the bridegroom himself is taken away. A reference, of course, primarily to the crucifixion, 
Then there will be intense grief on the part of his disciples. Then they will grieve. Then they will be saddened. Then, Jesus said, they will fast. There's probably also a reference here to the time after the ascension, when Jesus is removed long-term from his disciples. And that happy bond of fellowship was to be broken, albeit, we know, to be replaced by the, the better fellowship of the fuller indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in those days when Christ is gone, there will be reason to grieve and to express that grief, Jesus is saying. But now, he says, is not that time, and so my people, my disciples, don't fast. Now's the time to rejoice in the coming of the King, the Son of God. Because Jesus has come and he has brought with him something new, something better than what the world had in the past. Jesus is ushering in, remember, we've seen it, the kingdom of God. He's the the harbinger. In fact, he's the substance of the new covenant. The new, the better, the fuller expression of God's covenant with his people. And Jesus explains that further through two simple, homely parables. First, look what he says in verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. The point, as I say, is very simple. Take an old fabric that was properly prepared, pre-shrunk, we might say today. A tradesman known as a fuller would prepare that cloth, and a fabric that then has been worn and has been washed and eventually needs to be repaired. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't take a brand new, untested, untried, unfold piece of cloth and use it as a patch and sew it over the hole. If you do, when it's washed and when it dries, the patch will shrink. And as the patch itself begins to shrink, it pulls at the edge of the repair. Ultimately, as Jesus says, a worse tear is made. The second parable that he gives in verse 22 He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In those days, when they made wine, and they made fermented wine, uh, part of the fermenting would be done in vats, but then the, the final process of fermenting would be done after the wine was put into these leather skins, leather wineskins. And that fermentation would still go on. And gas would be given off by the fermenting wine, and it would stretch the the leather of the skin. But these leather skins, over time, after they had been stretched and after they had been used, would become brittle. And if you put new wine, fermenting wine, into these brittle skins, the skin couldn't expand when the gases uh, were expelled. And the pressure of the gas would cause the leather to break and the wineskin to burst. Obviously not only destroying the the wineskin, but spilling out all of the wine as well. So what's the point of these two stories? And they're really the same point. Actually, in all three parts of Jesus' answer, he's contrasting the appropriate with what is inappropriate. It's inappropriate for people to fast at a wedding party. It's inappropriate to put a new patch on an old garment. It's inappropriate to put new wine in old wineskins. 
Jesus is answering their question about fasting, but in doing so, he expands beyond that and speaks to the larger question of the relationship between what John the Baptist and the Pharisees and indeed the whole Old Covenant system, between that and what Jesus was bringing, what Jesus was instituting with his own ministry. And the point is that trying to mix those two together won't work. Trying to mix those two and live as an Old Testament person in the light of the New Testament, the New Covenant that Jesus brought is as inappropriate as fasting at a wedding or using a new patch on an old garment or putting new wine into old wineskins. Remember John the Baptist's ministry. His, His ministry, his baptism, his asceticism, his message were all preparatory. We saw that. We've had occasion to make note that John the Baptist is really an Old Testament character. As he looked forward, you know, he said, one is coming after me who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. One's going to come after me who is preferred before me because he was before me. It was preparation. And the Pharisees, who represented the Old Testament economy and the ceremonial law, and all of those fastings and washings and all of that. In both instances, then getting stuck there, getting stuck in all of that, and missing what Jesus was doing, was to do what was inappropriate considering the flow of redemptive history. Because Jesus came not merely to, as John the Baptist anticipated him, he didn't come to anticipate someone else. Jesus didn't come to reform Judaism. The work that God was now doing was a new work through his son. His coming was a turning point. His coming was a focal point in God's dealings with mankind. The old is gone, the new has come. The shadows of the old covenant are being gloriously replaced by the light and the reality of the new. Jesus does not come to to fix and reform Judaism. He comes to fulfill it. He comes to do what it all pointed at. The book of Galatians deals with, with the Judaistic or the Judaizing desire to remain focused on and find salvation in those old wineskins of the Mosaic Law. But the new wine of the new covenant cannot coexist with that idea, but will, like new wine put in old wineskins, ruin both if you try to stay in the old. Because then both the the old covenant and the new covenant, they lose their, their uniqueness in the flow of redemptive history. You know, Christianity originally was thought by some to be a sect of Judaism, but it never was. It was Christianity. It was Christianity, centered and focused and given substance and legitimacy in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who had come to fulfill all of that from the Old Testament. That doesn't mean the Old Testament's irrelevant. It means a certain aspects of it are. The ceremonies, the feast, the fast, the shadows, the tabernacle, the temples, the sacrifices, the washings, the, the incense, all of that is the wineskin that was appropriate at that time, but now with the coming of Jesus who fulfills all of that, 
It is now a trap to be stuck in that. If you fail to recognize what Christ's coming meant, the fulfillment, the king had come, the kingdom of God had come. Now there is a new vitality coming into the religious experience of those who seek God because now God has come among men. It's the legitimate difference between the letter and the spirit which Paul says is substantial. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the things then represented by the Pharisees and and even by the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist are past, Jesus is saying. The kingdom has come in Christ. And so it would be inappropriate for Jesus' disciples, then and today, to step back into that and be burdened by those things, to try to live in those things. That's what Jesus is saying here. Again, there's nothing wrong with fasting, provided, of course, that it's done with proper attitude, again, Matthew 6, and provided it is not itself burdened with the thought that it does more than it does, to think that it it leverages something from God. It doesn't. But as we wrap up here, let me draw your attention to another, uh, an application of this idea for you sitting here today. Let us, beloved, learn the lesson of the patch on the garment and the wine in the wineskins. Because we, you, by God's grace, are also in a new situation. You are in the new covenant. You, Paul says, are a new creation. Reborn from above. Regenerated from within by the Holy Spirit. And for you, you have passed from death to life. And so you, we, I, we need to be on guard against living in any way that is inappropriate to our new situation. The new life of the Spirit has been poured into the new wineskins of our redeemed selves. And for us, beloved, here's the danger. The danger is to, hear this, the danger is for us to live as old wineskins. To live in ways, to act in ways that are incongruous with that are out of keeping with the new creations that you are. Things that are as inappropriate as it is to fast at a feast. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's the application for us. We are are new creations. We are included in the new covenant. Let us act as that. And as we endeavor to do that, with God's help, let us rejoice in the bridegroom who has made it all possible, our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us rejoice that by God's grace and by Christ's doing, we are future participants at that eternal and glorious wedding supper.
the wedding supper of the Lamb. And therefore, let us live properly in preparation for that great celebration. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, help us. Help us to to live as those who are new creations. Help us to live consistently with that, that truth, that fact, that undeniable truth according to your word. That we who are in Christ, that we who have trusted in Christ, that the old has gone, that the new has come. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in what Christ has done in what he has brought to pass. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to never, or to always, Father, resist that temptation to to draw back into those old things and help us to rejoice in Christ and to live as those receptacles of the new wineskin of the new covenant. We ask this in his name. Amen.